0: To try to uh, talk about as much of 1 Corinthians 4 as we're able to talk about this morning, but we're not going to begin there. Last week we hit on a topic that seems to have struck a nerve with an awful lot of people, and I don't want to just leave it there. I want to dig even deeper because. I think that we as Christian people just don't understand or appreciate the great depth and breadth of Christ's finished work and what that means to us individually. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that Pauline theology is built on the full sufficiency, the full completed work of Christ. And on that basis, he could say I don't care about your judgment of me. I don't even judge my own self. And the one who takes my appraisal is God. And that's really the only opinion I'm concerned with. And so I said last week that if you're okay with God, you're okay. Because no other opinion really matters. And I want to go further into that this morning, and sort of the classic passage on Paul's complete confidence in Christ and in God's saving grace is Romans 8. And I have often, 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 repeatedly, repeatedly, ad infinitum, I have quoted Romans 8 over and over again, but this morning I want to look at a part of Romans 8 that I'm afraid too often gets truncated because we all know the golden chain of redemption. That is the very essence of everything we believe. We know that whom God did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. We do know that who he predestinated, those are the ones he called. And the ones that he called, those are the ones that he justified. And those that he justified, those are the ones he glorified. We know that. If you don't know it, I hope to drill it into your brain. I hope you realize that it is God who, from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, that he determined who his saved, elect, chosen people were going to be, wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life, and then set about the work of making sure that everything he determined Before the foundation of the world came to pass. Because he is the almighty. He is the omnipotent one. He is. We use the word sovereign. He is the sovereign one. And therefore whatever his determination is. He can exercise that almighty power. To make sure that his determination comes to pass. And there are no questions about it. There are no perhaps. There's no but, there's no, well, if. What there is is the plain, clear declaration of God that this is what's going to occur in his universe, and make no mistake about it, it is his universe. And the same way that you decide what happens in your kitchen or what happens in your household or living room, unless you have five dogs, but the same way that you decide... I looked in Joni's eyes, and I could tell she was a little panicky. (laughs) The same way that you make decisions in your household, God is making decisions in his household. And his household is the known universe. And so he's accomplishing what he has determined to accomplish. And the more that we understand that, the more that we rest utterly and completely in God's determination and Christ's finished work, the more confidence we can have, the more security we can have. Because let's be honest, let's admit it, as human beings, we are constantly filled with self-doubt. We constantly worry, well, if I do get up there in front of God and it's the judgment, what happens then? What if he brings up some of the places I've been and some of the things that I've done and... The evil that goes on in my heart, in my mind. What if he knows all that and brings it up? How could I possibly stand in front of that kind of judgment? All of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, have to admit that we deserve God's wrath and God's judgment. And that if we're judged eternally, then we are rightly judged. And that's what this portion of Romans 8 is about. It's about Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And if you get a hold of that, if you really begin to understand that, and as you look at the context in which Paul says that, you'll see that he is saying there is nothing, there is no one, not even you, not even the most fleeting of thoughts. There's no person, there's no angel, there's no demon, there's no devil, there's no Satan that can get you because you are secure in God. And once you get a hold of that, you're okay. I heard a psychologist, I've quoted this before, but I heard a psychologist years ago say, nobody will ever get well until they give up their dream of having a perfect past. And I like that phrase. Because none of us have a perfect past. And our past haunts us. And it jumps up when we don't expect it and says, you know, you're no good. (laughs) I have evidence. I have proof. I can show that you're no good. And so last week I said, okay, then just admit it to yourself. You're not any good. And then you can give up on trying to be good enough to please God or to obligate God. Instead, you can rest entirely on his finished work, and everything that he has accomplished for you. Here, we'll let Paul say it. Turn to Romans 8, and we'll start with the familiar passages. We'll start at Romans 8, 28. And I want these words to sink down into your soul. I want these words to be tattooed to your heart and mind. Because the more that you know the reality of what Paul is saying here, the more you can rest. The more you can have confidence and trust and faith in Christ's finished work. Here are Paul's words. Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. First thing I want to point out about that verse. Who's the actor? God. God. God is the actor. You are not the actor. God is accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in his universe because it is his universe. Therefore, he can majestically and sovereignly say, everything that occurs is going to play out to my ultimate desire and will and to the good of my people. And if you hold on to that, It will get you through difficult times. Because difficult times are coming. Difficult times are part of the package. Hardship, pain, sickness, death, that's all part of the package. But you can endure it. You can get through it if you know that God is working it for the ultimate good of all his people. But again, it's God who's the actor. We are passive in that process. So we know, not we hope, not we think, not we suppose, but we know that all things work together for good to a specific group. Not to everybody, but everything works to the ultimate good of those who love God. Of the specific group that are called the called, And it will work out according, the last phrase, to his purpose. It will work out according to his purpose. So he's the actor from beginning to end of that verse, beginning to end of this entire chapter. But he's the actor and it is his intention that when it's all said and done, it resolves to your good. Now think about it for a moment. If you stand before God and you are not judged... And you hear something on the order of well done, good and faithful servant. If he says, come on in to the glory that was prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. If you realize that you're going to spend the rest of eternity in the place where there's no more sickness and no more death, no more pain that God is going to wipe away every tear. Well, then how good did that work out for you? That worked out really well in fact I'm certain that within my first two minutes in heaven all the pain all the trouble all the agony that I went through in this life won't matter I'll be standing there in glory with God okay so that's what verse 28 is about now it does not work out to the ultimate good of everybody it works out to the ultimate good of those people who were called. And he's going to identify in just a moment who the called are. Those are the people that God foreknew and predestinated. That's what 29 says, for whom he foreknew. Now, let me be picky about words for just a moment. Because far too often people read that verse and say, well, see, that means that God knew things about people. He knew they were going to choose Jesus and make him Lord and Savior. And so that's why God chose them. He knew what they were going to be like. And because they were like people who had faith, God chose them in response. But look again at the word. It's even more obvious in the Greek text that he's not talking about knowing things about people. What he knows is people. He knows particular people. Now, this is a word that means has intimate relationship with. You know that at the beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam knew Eve and she bore a child. That doesn't mean that he was just cognizant of who she was. He didn't go, hi, I'm Adam. Who are you? Eve pregnant. No, he had an intimate relationship with her that led to her bearing a child. This is the concept of knowing, the concept of having intimacy with someone. God didn't just know certain people, he foreknew certain people. He knew in advance who those people were. He knew them so well, he was able to write their names down in a book. That's remarkable. So the people that he foreknew, he then predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? It means that we are ultimately going to be like Christ. What was Christ like? Well, after his resurrection, he had a body that was as comfortable sitting at the right hand of God as it was sitting by the Sea of Galilee cooking up fish. He had a body that was able to go through a locked door to appear in the midst of his apostles. He had that kind of never-dying, eternal, spiritual, and yet physical body, his resurrected body. Now, that's hard for us to grasp, but that's exactly what we are promised, that we are going to be conformed to the image of his son, the likeness of his son. And notice, we are predestined to that very thing by God who has all the power. I have, in my household, I have, I was going to say, all the power, but then we got cats. Um, (laughs) But when my kids were little, I determined where they'd go, and when they'd go, and when they got up, and what they'd do, and which toys they could play with, and when they had to do homework, and I was in charge. It was my house, and I would determine, you're going to school. Well, I predestined them. I determined what the destination was going to be in advance. And because I had the power to actually get them there, I, in a very limited way, predestined them to school, for which I apologize. (laughs) Now stretch that out to your God concept. God who has all the power, all the authority, all the might, so that there's no might, power, or glory left over for anybody else, that God predestined predetermined the word is actually proorizo in the greek it's the word for horizon what's out ahead but it's in advance of the horizon it's knowing that you're going there so god determined before the foundation of the world that certain people would end up in his eternal presence That's what that verse is saying. I saw you go, huh, I know. It's remarkable. Because who he had a relationship with in advance, he also predestined, predetermined to become conformed to the image of his son so that his son might be the firstborn of many brethren. If he's the firstborn, there have to be more. It doesn't say he's the onlyborn. He's the firstborn. The same way that Paul picks up the language of the Feast of Firstfruits and says that Christ was the firstfruits of the resurrection. The point behind the firstfruits offering was an anticipation of a good harvest. And so if Christ was the firstfruit of the resurrection, that means there have to be other people resurrected like him in order for him to be first. And this is exactly what God has planned for us so whom he predestined this is verse 30 these also he called so who did he call a moment ago we saw that all things work together for those people who are called to those people who love God we saw that so the people he predestined are the people he foreknew and those are the people he called one group of people, who I say again, are passive in the process. God is the actor. So whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, same group of people, he also justified. And whom he justified, same group of people, these he has also, past tense, glorified.
1: These are the ones for whom all things work
0: These are the ones for whom all things work together for good. It's one continuous series of Pauline argument. The same consistent theology that God chose a people and those people, it's all going to work out for their good. In what way? They're going to be justified and glorified. It doesn't get better than that. So it's going to work out for your good. But I said all that just to build up steam to get to the section I want to talk about. So then, verse 31, what are we going to say about these things? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Think about that for a moment. Last week, I, I synopsized that sentiment by simply saying, if you're okay with God, you're okay. But that's a very Pauline thing to say because he said here, if God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, what's the answer to that question? No. No one. No one can be against you. No one. Now, there are some in the theological world who will raise their hand at that point and say, well, no one but me. I can cause my own downfall. Paul eliminates that idea by making you passive, by making God the actor, by saying these things are all happening for you and to you, and you're not doing any of them. Therefore, if God is for you, nobody can be against you. There is no memory. There is no activity of your past that can come get you because that has been, as we saw last week, cast as far as the east is from the west. Jesus is returning without regard to sin because he came the first time to accomplish the forgiveness of sin. Now, having fully accomplished the forgiveness of sin, he's coming back for his church without regard to sin because that's already done. Isn't this hard to think about? Isn't this tough to grasp? You think, well, you don't know where I've been. That might be true of Dwight. You know, maybe he's going to get in by God's good grace. But when God, when God approaches me, he's going to have to bring up some of this stuff. Oh, you mean like David the murderer or David the murderous adulterer? who God would say was a man after my own heart? I mean, the one who who would write that blessed is the man whom God does not account sin to? See, God, when he forgives, and I want to say this as plainly as I can because I really want us to grasp this concept. God, when he forgives, forgives entirely, completely, and eternally that forgiveness is forever. And if it's a forever forgiveness, nothing's coming up. There's nothing that's going to come up that's going to go, oh, that intention of God since before the foundation of the world, that name written in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus dying for you, sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of your complete redemption, that doesn't count because Micah did this. That would mean I'd have to worship Micah Because Micah figured out how to be stronger than God. He figured out how to thwart the intention of God. He figured out how to leave God going, what? I I didn't see that coming. God would have to admit that he was wrong because Micah made him out a fool. But if God is all-powerful, there's no power in Micah. And Micah can't do anything to upset the plan of God. And this is exactly what the Bible says. I saw your hand up. Yeah. You're on a roll. Keep going. <laughs> I'm at least on a croissant. <laughs> I, you
1: so. brought up that.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that. So.
1: <laughs> you brought up one of the points that I was going to ask about is, is it a form of, of ego and vanity to say, he can save you, but he can't save me? You know, just to say that I'm the one.
0: That... Well, I think that's why when Paul gets into 1 Corinthians 4, having established that it's up to God to judge people, he then says, don't judge each other. And so, yes, I would assume that it is a vain move, an egocentric move to start thinking, I'm okay, you're so-so. Well, no, I was
1: doing the opposite, you know.
0: Or you're okay, I'm so-so. Right, Someone's
1: saying, he can't right. save me. I
0: he can't, can't save me because I'm so bad. Right. Yes, that's ego. Yes, that again is taking the complete, eternal, finished work of God, setting that aside and saying, I'm capable of overthrowing God. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, listen to the logic here. He who did not spare his own son. God gave up his own son on our behalf the son that he eternally loved, the son that he had eternally been in fellowship with, the one who had always been in intimate relation with God, and then he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, think about the separation, the departure that had to happen in that moment as the wrath of God fell on Christ on behalf of other people. Okay, now that being the case, he who delivered us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, now that he's done that, how will he not also with him freely give us everything? He's already given his most precious item. He's already sacrificed the most precious thing he has, his son. He's already sent his son to the planet to be not just tortured and killed, but tortured and killed by evil, wicked people. Philippians 2, eight. that though it wasn't robbery for him to think that he was in the very form of God, nevertheless, he took on the form of a servant, and he humbled himself all the way to death on the cross. Now, if God decided before the foundation of the world that this was going to happen, and if he sacrificed his son, and if he poured his wrath on his son, well, then his son absolutely accomplished what God wanted to accomplish. Therefore, how will he not give us all the rest of it? I mean, that's to say that Christ didn't do it well. That's to say that Christ's sacrifice was pretty good. It maybe got you something, but it didn't get you everything. No, instead, the Pauline thinking is the finished work of Christ is so complete, so broad, so immense, so eternal that because it happened and because God gave his son, then everything else that God has belongs to the people that he sacrificed on the behalf of, which is why we can be called joint heirs with Christ. Okay, so what does God own? What is God going to give his son? Everything. Everything. And we're going to be joint heirs with him. So God is not just preparing a harp and some wings and your own personal cloud. That's not what he's preparing for you. He's preparing a heavenly splendor where joy reigns complete and constant. Where the worship of God is is finally done in spirit and in truth by beings who don't have their wicked, depraved, messed up minds interrupting their worship. It is God's intention since before the foundation of the world that there would be people who would glorify his son and that his son would save completely so that they could worship and praise and glorify him forever because they would recognize that they don't deserve to be there. It's only because of him that they're there. And that's God's intention. How is he not going to do it? That's his plan. That's what he decided to do since forever ago. And Micah's going to mess it up? No way. So I'm still not to the verse I'm trying to get to. (laughs) He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things here's the verse for who shall bring a charge against God's elect now I want you to think through this argument because it's brilliant and I think we kind of give it short shrift by just reading past it and thinking we understand it but who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect he's already identified who the elect are those are the people that God foreknew Those are the people that God has predestined and called and justified and glorified. That's already identified. Those are the people who it can be said of them, God's for them, who can be against them. So now in keeping with that thought, who can be against them, who's going to lay anything to their charge? Now, in Revelation 12, I think it is 12.10, somebody check me, but Revelation 12.10 Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night. And that's what the word Satan means. The Hebrew word Satan means accuser. I mean, that's his proper name. That's what he does. And he's up there before the court of God day and night accusing the brethren. While you're busy sleeping, he's still busy accusing you. Think of the book of Job. How does it begin? It begins with Satan being in God's presence and accusing Job. He's being true to his name. He's accusing the brethren day and night. And you are not praying for yourself day and night. You're busy chasing Pokemon or whatever it is you're doing. You're... (laughs) You're... I'm sorry, did I appeal to him finally? (laughs) I finally got through to you. Okay, good. So God has determined before the foundation of the world, he's going to save a particular people, and yet those people are being accused by Satan to God all the time, constantly, day and night. That's why I'm so happy that this verse exists. Because who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because let's be honest, when it comes to me, every time Satan accuses me, he's right. Every time he says to God, did you see what he did? Did you see what he said? Did you hear that one? He's right. He's got me dead to rights. Yes, I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. And yet, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, certainly not other people. There are people on the internet right now who are condemning me to hell. And uh, let me make this clear. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) Because because they don't have the authority to do that. They don't have the jurisdiction to do that. They're just human beings. And who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I don't care what they think of me. I care what God thinks of me. He's the judge. He's the determiner. He's the one who's going to eternally save or eternally judge people not somebody on the internet and so look at this phrase who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect think about it logically if Satan is accusing you who's he accusing you to to God he's accusing you to God whether it's somebody else accusing you they have to accuse you to God God is the judge. He's the decider. So God is the center of all of it. They have to accuse you to God in such a way that God will say, you've got a good point. You're right. I'm going to give up on that person because that accusation is accurate enough that I'm swayed by it. Look at the next line. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Remember what we just read? Whom he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies. He makes you righteous. A word that I have often used to try to explain justification is: it's like God rightifies you. <laughs> you know, he, he says, "You're righteous in my eyes. You are righteous because my Son is righteous, and I'm going to give you His righteousness." And now because you have Jesus' own righteousness, you have Jesus' own perfection on your record, well, then who can judge you? Well, God's not going to because God's the one who justified you. So nobody's going to get to say, well, God, now you have to give up on him. You have to judge him now because God's going to say, no, I'm the one who gave my son. I'm the one who has already paid for this person. I have already justified this person. Let me say it more clearly. God will never, ever, no matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've thought, God will never, ever give up on you. Ever. And hallelujah and thank God, that's about the right time for that. Because he's never going to give up on you. He's the one that justified you. He's the one that chose you. He's the one that wrote your name down. He's the one who called you and in his mind has already glorified you. So then he's not going to turn on you. And then you'll say, well, okay, yes, God. Okay, God. Um, God might not, but Jesus might. What if Jesus brings a charge against me? What if Jesus goes to God and says... You know, I thought we were going to save this guy, but I didn't know he was going to be like this. He turned out to be much too bad, and so Jesus is going to bring a charge against you. Look at the next line. God is the one who justified. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yea, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Hang on to the last phrase. Okay, so now God will not judge you. God is determined not to judge you. You say, well, what about Jesus? What about my standing with Jesus? What about the things I've said about Jesus? What about the times that I've taken his name in vain? What about the times that I I could have done something good in his name and I just didn't? What about all the times that I know I'm Christian, but I went somewhere, I did something I wasn't supposed to do? Jesus has to be disappointed in me. Paul's answer is... He died for you, and not only that, he raised again for you, meaning that God accepted his full, complete sacrifice, and in accepting that sacrifice, you are utterly justified, redeemed, ransomed, paid for, your sin debt is gone, Jesus did all that for you, he's not going to condemn you. He's done everything he can do to save you. No, I'm going to say that again. He's done everything necessary to save you. He did not do all he could do or can do. He did all that he needed to do. And so now who's going to accuse us? Okay, there are going to be men accusing us. There's going to be Satan accusing us. Think about Peter. Very scary conversation that he had with Jesus where Jesus told him, To his face, Satan has desired to have you so that he can sift you like wheat. That's Jesus talking. Who would know? The implication is, I've met with Satan. He knows from the scripture. He knows from the Old Testament. He gets one of the 12. He doesn't seem to know which one yet. But based on your behavior, he thinks it's you. And so Satan has desired to have you and sift you like wheat. So what's the answer? He did not say, so Peter, get busy. Peter, do more good works. Peter, go get baptized. Peter, if you would just make me Lord and Savior. If you, something, do something. Jesus did not say any of that. He said, I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you. I got between you and God. I've prayed for you. Why? So that your faith would not fail. Okay, so Jesus acts as intercessor. He does not act as judge. He does not act as accuser. He acts as the one who stands between you and your evil and God in his holiness, and he makes it okay between the two of you. He reconciles you, which is why Paul would say that the ministry of Christianity is the ministry of reconciliation, not That we can do enough good things to be reconciled to God. But God has done enough good things to reconcile you to himself. He's the actor. So let's read it. Who is the one that condemns Jesus Christ? Is he who died? Yea, rather he who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. At the right hand of God. I don't have access to the right hand of God. I can't barge into the right hand of God. I can't even go to the state capitol without guards stopping me. I can't get into the White House. There are lots of places I can't go. But our advocate, which is the word for lawyer, the one who is arguing our case, is God's only son. And if you don't think that Jesus can get a prayer through, can get an intercession through, don't you think that God listens to him when he says, here's my blood. Here's what I did for this person. Here's how I died and suffered for that person. Here's how I have removed their sin utterly and completely. And now I'm interceding on their behalf because they need somebody to intercede because they're not good enough to get to you. But I am good enough to get to you. And you promised them to me since before the foundation of the world. They belong to me. Therefore, I am going to intercede for them to make sure that they end up in my eternal presence. Because that's what I do. I'm the redeemer. Do you get why we talk about praise and worship? I mean, when you know what God has actually done for you. When you understand what Jesus has really done for you, you have no trouble loving him. You love him utterly and completely because he was that good to you. I was talking yesterday to Lori, one of the girls from Essex. They gave themselves that title, by the way, the girls from Essex. I did not make that up. They, they gave themselves that name. But I was talking to her yesterday, and she said, it's just so hard to believe that God loves me that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, what did he do for me? Eternally, loved me with an everlasting love. Poured his wrath on his son and made me eternal promises that are too grand for me to even begin to comprehend. And yet Paul would say plainly that God as the actor, as the holy one, as the just and justifying one, that God as the redeemer, that God did all this on the behalf of his people. Why? Because he knew you couldn't do it. You can't do it. So he did it. And you've never heard better news in your stupid little life ever.
1: Amen. (laughs)
0: Who is the one that condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yea, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Okay, so now, knowing all that, knowing what God has accomplished, knowing what Christ has accomplished, knowing how much they have both loved us and are for us, knowing that all things work together for our good, Knowing that this is God's intention, since the beginning, there's still going to be somebody somewhere who's going to say, but, 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 but I, me, kind of like Megan said a few minutes ago, but sure, that may be true of other people, but me, I'm just so bad, I might do something where I slip, I might do something where God is just forced to condemn me. I might do something that God says, that's the one. You were fine right up till there, but you did that. Read the next verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, the obvious answer is no, that can't do it, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword. Well, it's already written. It's already in the scripture that life is hard. It's already in the scripture that for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So then those things can't separate us from God because in God's word it already says that we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Knowing that, can the slaughter keep us from God? Not if God has already said that's who we are. That's the plan. That's how it works. So that's already accounted for. So none of those things can separate us from the love of God. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer Through him that loved us. I talked to somebody recently who has a disease that is going to kill them. When I said that's that's sad, that's a shame, that's difficult. He said, no, no, that's my ticket home. (laughs) I've been waiting to go home. And God gave me my ticket to go home. He gave me this disease. That's someone who really understands that he is just accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And all these things are predetermined by God. God has already established that it's going to be hard for us here on planet Earth. But in all these things, we graduate to heaven. We graduate. We step from this life into eternal life. We don't die. We graduate. We go be with our Redeemer, with our Savior. We have the complete and utter thrill of being in the presence of Jesus himself and joining the choir immortal in the glory of God. So Paul would say, in all these things, in all that trouble, all that turbulence, all that difficulty, in all those things, we conquer. We go on to be with God who predetermined that since before the foundation of the world. For I am convinced, verse 38, for I am convinced... Then neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. I need to be clear here. Paul has already spoken about we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But then he speaks of dark forces, principalities, powers. The kosmokratos, the, the rulers of the darkness of this world. And doesn't it seem dark these days? And against spiritual wickedness in high places. So what Paul's saying here is I'm convinced that angels are fallen angels or principalities, the ones that, that rule this world. I am convinced that none of them... Things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a declarative statement. Nothing can get you. And then somebody will raise their hand and say, but me. And the answer is, are you a created thing? Are you a creature? Yes? Well, then no creature can stop him. Nothing that he has created, not time, not distance, not the hardships of this life, not our own foolishness, can separate us from the love of God that is demonstrated in Christ Jesus. And if you ever get a hold of that, It will carry you through whatever comes your way next. Whatever problem shows up next, you'll be able to endure. You'll be able to get through it. You'll know what Paul's going to say to the Corinthians. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but will With the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. Even the temptations of this life, even the trials, the hardships, the difficulties of this life, and let's not sugarcoat it, life is hard. Life is tough. And in the midst of those difficulties, in the midst of those hardships, we're going to shake our fist at God and say, where are you? I thought you loved me more than this. And Paul says, even that can't separate you from God, from the love of God. Do you get it? Do you see what the Pauline theology is on this? Can you see why Paul, after riding down the Damascus road and a light shines from heaven and he gets knocked down and then a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you persecute, and then Jesus ends up sending him to the household of one of the people he was going to either kill or drag back to Jerusalem to be tried, one of the people who were in the way, a Christian believer, he has to go be prayed for by that man, boy, there is irony, and and God converted him instantaneously Though Paul not only wasn't looking for it, not only wasn't expecting it, but he was actively resisting it. But because he was a chosen vessel who was going to preach about Jesus to the Gentiles. And because God determined that's what he was going to do. God changed him in an instant. Can you see now why Paul would write this kind of theology? It's God. It's all God. It's completely God. It's none of me. Nothing can change it. And whatever God decides is going to happen is going to happen. And so if he's decided that you're saved, you're saved. Nobody to oppose you. And
1: it's all going to be joy for the joy that was set before him. That's the best
0: part. For the joy that was set before him. Isn't that good?
1: It's fun just getting together and talking, damn
0: I agree 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that was all introduction actually 1 Corinthians chapter 4 we have to make sure that Gladys gets her money's worth we're not going to get very far in 1 Corinthians 4 but I want you to see the background. I want you to understand the theology that is driving Paul to say these things that he's saying. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner. He's talking about Apollos and himself. Regard us as servants of Christ, the stewards of the ministry. I told you last week, huperetes, under rower, see us as servants as slaves don't make us something special or set us on a pedestal in this case moreover it is required of stewards that's the household steward who was in charge of the distribution we're the ones who are stewarding the mysteries of God and we're distributing them out to you it's required of us that we are found trustworthy verse 3 but to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you. Now do you see why Paul could say that? (laughs) After everything we've looked at this morning, now you can see why Paul would say, what, you judge me? You, You have an opinion on me? I am a steward of God's word, bringing to you the very words of life. You want to say something negative about me? And so he says, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Because as I said a minute ago, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer who is in the judge's chamber. He's sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. So I don't care what any human court says, whether it's one person saying bad things about me, or whether it's a whole bunch of people who get together as a group, as a court, and decide that I'm wrong, whether it's the Supreme Court of America deciding that we Christians need to just shut up and go away. I don't care. I'm going to keep saying what the truth is. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I'm so sure there's nothing against me, I don't even check anymore. Verse 4, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, for the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes Who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and he will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, that's as far as we got last week. Those five verses. If I'm lucky, we'll get one verse today. If I hurry. Verse six. Let me introduce you to a great big compound Greek word, metaschematizo. Use it in a sentence later, impress your friends. Metaschematizo is the compound Greek word that is translated as figuratively applied. And what it means is, Paul is going to admit now that he chose to apply these names under Rower Rower servant in the household he applied those to him and apollos but it's not meant to be a lesson on apollos and paul what he's saying is look we're the ones that brought you the gospel we're the ones through whom you received the holy spirit we're the ones who baptized you we ought to be the ones who within the church are the most recognized and yet i have said even in that condition that we're to be assessed as under rowers that we're servants distributors in the household we're not the high and mighty and he used that word in order to say now apply this to yourselves who do you think you are in the church because later when he starts talking about the lord's supper he's going to talk about the fact that there were people who were rich who would come with plenty of food and they would eat their food in front of the poor and the hungry and the starving And he would correct that behavior because there was this division within the church between the high and the mighty and the powerful and the rich and those who had nothing. And he expected that they would share everything jointly. But they weren't doing that. So he said, look, I'm a servant. Now you be a servant. That's the point of this phrase. Listen, now these things, brethren, I have Figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. Okay, this is really interesting. I don't have a lot of time to beat on this, but notice yet again, Paul goes back to what does the scripture say? And throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scripture, especially throughout the law, you see God saying, take care of each other. Look after each other. Your brethren who are Israelites, you can't even take them as slaves. If you take a debt from them or take their land from them, you have to give it back at the year of Jubilee. You're to take care of each other. So be careful not to get so puffed up that you start acting beyond what was written. And so do not exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant or lifted up in behalf of one against another. So again, this is thematic with Paul. Within the church, Paul says over and over again, take care of each other, love one another. At our meeting on Tuesday night at the men's meeting, Jeff read for us Philippians 2 again. It's just one of my absolute favorite passages because it does say That we're to be concerned about the things of other people and not concerned about the things that belong to us. That we're to esteem others as better than ourselves. And then again, Paul takes the time to say, Look at Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh and he humbled himself to the cross. So let that mind be in you which was also in Christ. He put others ahead of himself. He sacrificially loved and gave himself, ransomed himself on behalf of other people. So then, how ought you to be? Here, I'll break it down to brass tacks again. Was God good to you? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. yes.
0: How can you not be good to other people? Was God gracious to you? Yes. yes sir. Well, I would have to say, after what we've read in Romans 8, we would have to agree that God was incredibly gracious to us. So then Paul's argument is, be gracious to other people. Here's a tough one. Was God long-suffering with you? Did God put up with you? He he had to be really long-suffering with me. He really put up with a lot. So how can I not be long-suffering with you? If you belong to the same God that was that patient with me, I must be patient to you. And that is Pauline thinking, don't become arrogant, don't become lifted up, don't think you're the important one, after all, Paul himself, Apollos himself, he said, we are nothing but low under rowers, we are merely servants distributing the mysteries of God to you, and if we can assess ourselves as being the lowest in the church, then how do you get away with saying, you're the best, you're the top, you're the important one. You can't. So who has caused you to differ? I I promise I'm ending here. This is verse 7. We made it to two verses this morning. I know. I I deserve a hand for that. I know. Don't stop. Well, you drove all the way from Canada. The rest of the folks here are trying to beat the Methodists down to Denny's. And so they're... they've got some place to be but who has caused you to differ that's the King James the NASB says for who regards you as superior if you are chosen if you are elect if you are beloved since before the foundation of the world who did that God did that who has made you to differ God he's the one who made the difference not you not you in your arrogance, not you in your pride, not you being lifted up in yourselves. It is God who made you different. And therefore, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, he's writing to the Corinthians who have received the Holy Spirit and received the gifts of the Spirit. And God has been nothing but good and gracious to them. But everything they can point to, everything that they've got in their Christian life, they would have to say, I got that from God. God gave me these gifts God took care of me therefore since God gave me all these things I can't brag as if I did not get it as a gift that's the last sentence but if you did receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it so look I'm wrapping up despite what Lori prefers understand the breadth Of what Christ has done. Understand the completion. Of what Christ has done for you. Understand. How grand it is to be. Eternally loved by God. Understand his divine plan. From beginning. Before the foundation of the world. To the end. Which is you end up glorified. And in the mind of God. In the majesty and superiority of God. Every bit of that is already accomplished because he's the one who decided it. And he knew what you were going to be like. He knew what your doubts were going to be. He knew what your sins and depravity was going to be. He knew all that. That's why he sent his son. He sent his son to save you because you needed to be saved. If you didn't need to be saved, he wouldn't have bothered to send his son. But because he knew you were depraved and sinful and incapable, he sent his son to save you. And we have a complete Savior. We have a complete Savior who saves completely. We have a fully capable, fully functional, completely knowledgeable Savior who knows what you were going to do and what you were going to think and what you were going to be like, and he saved you anyway. Absolutely. So that being the case recognize that everything you have in this Christian life, every bit of knowledge that you have, every gift that you have, every capability that you have came to you from God and therefore you can't brag about it. You can't say I'm lifted up, I'm the important one in the church because God gave you that thing. And therefore, since these are all things that we received and we receive them in common We ought to be kind and gracious and loving to one another and in that way reflect the God who has ever saved us. You got it?
1: He picked us to the most intimate relationship with Christ as his bride. Yeah? What else could you (laughs) want?
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't want to keep going on, but God, who is eternally in charge, could have chosen any relationship he wanted. He could have chosen Jesus' master, and you're the slaves. He could have chosen Jesus' landlord, and you're the behind payment renter. (laughs) He could have chosen anything, but he chose the relationship of bride and groom so that we become one with him. I have to have to stop. But let me just say, praise his glorious name. Who
1: could ever imagine a God like that?
0: Who could imagine a God like that? Don't get me started because we'll go to the end of Romans 11 when, when Paul actually says, who can figure this out? Who could possibly see that God would be like this? This is something that has to be revealed to you because you couldn't possibly know it. You couldn't possibly figure it out. Look, I can figure out a religion that says, do works. I can figure that out. That's very fleshly. That's very man-centered. I can figure that out. I can figure out Islam. I've read the book, and it all went, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, if it were left up to me. But because it's not left up to me, because I'm not the actor, because it's all left up to God, well, then that's got to be revealed to you. God has to kindly show that to you. And if he has, well, that's the greatest gift you've ever received, ever. Amen. Amen. I guess we all just clap, so you. <laughs> <laughs> that's because you really wanted to clap for the McInturf girls, and I didn't let you, and so that was that was building up inside you, and you just couldn't help yourselves. And yes, are there any questions about that?
1: later
0: Later. Later. yes I dread lunch Um, are there any questions okay now we have to do something important here because I was told last night that the girls from Essex after several years of listening to us online they want to say goodbye to the internet congregation (laughs) so let's say goodbye to the internet congregation (laughs) do you have anything to add? Can. Can.
1: Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.